Hello. The basis for my integrity as a podcast host is not that I claim to be objective. If you listen regularly, and and if so, thank you, you know the kind of middle-aged, middle-class, centre-left, semi-intellectual that I am. But I do try to be reasonably honest about my perspectives and predispositions. By the way, this issue of transparency and hidden agendas will reappear in this edition of Bridges to the Future. But given that, let me make an admission about the book we'll be discussing today with its two authors. From the moment when McKinsey comes to town, the hidden influence of the world's most powerful consulting firm landed on my doormat. I was sure I would relish reading it. The idea of trashing McKinsey is delicious. And particularly for those of us who have for years been in resentful awe of the kind of self-assured, well-connected, influential people who get jobs with the company. You see, I could admit that I've probably never been smart enough or hard-working enough to be hired by McKinsey. But isn't it much more comforting to find out that maybe I was too good for them all along? This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to be joined by writers, investigative reporters, Walt Bogdanich and Michael Forsyth, authors of the highly entertaining When McKinsey Comes to Town. Hi, Walt. Hi, Michael. Hello. Hello. Thanks for joining me. The first question, I guess, is why you wrote the book, but I'm going to put that in a particular context. I'm interested in why you wrote the book, given that there is now something which your book led me to, a kind of mini industry in critical scrutiny of McKinsey. Well, the mini industry of scrutiny of McKinsey really didn't exist before our book, though. It was just a blank sheet. It was a black box that nobody knew much about other than, you know, the word on the street is they hire a lot of smart people and and they're very successful, but their entire business model is based on secrecy. And we knew that there is an incredible concentration of power in McKinsey as a consultant, advising in 65 countries and governments around the world and agencies throughout the United States. But there's no accountability for them and no regulation. And as investigative reporters, we thought that it was incumbent on us to take a look and see what was inside that black box. And Michael, was it the same for you, same motivation? That's right. The noise you may have seen before our book was published last year is a lot of noise, a lot of investigations that you know we started back in 2018 with our first article, which focused on South Africa, but also served kind of as an introduction to our investigation of McKinsey. So it's been a long process, and we certainly didn't set out to write a book, you know, but one story led to another, and eventually uh, publishers got interested, and it just ran the gamut you know, of both stories around the world in South Africa and China to stories, you know, inside the United States, stories about the NHS. So there's something for everybody. You know, it's a little trite to say that, but it's, you know, McKinsey, since they are everywhere, there were stories everywhere. And one of the things that I think marks out your work from other kind of critiques is the access that you had tell us just a little bit about the access because of course and we'll go on to discuss this later 
secrecy is very much part of the kind of modus operandi of McKinsey. So how important was it for you to have access? And obviously you can't kind of reveal names, although you do, there are a couple of people, obviously you quote in the book, but how important was having that access to your ability to write the book, Michael? It was absolutely vital. And, you know, when we say access, sometimes that word has a bad connotation these days and access journalists, you know, somebody with high sources, you know, in Whitehall or in, in the White House. But when we say access, we mean people that came to us, sources we developed that were not the usually the managing partner or the senior partners at McKinsey. They were not approved by McKinsey, but idealistic, many times young, brilliant McKinsey consultants who were very upset about what they saw at the company. And they provided invaluable help to us in guiding us you know, and allowing us to, to write the book we did. I think what really helped us more than anything else was our access to their client list and how much they collected from these clients. Because McKinsey instructs its employees never to disclose the identity of their clients or what they're doing and what they tell them. And by accessing this list, which no one before has ever accessed, and that includes governments, we got it. I'm not going to tell you how we got it. But what it did is it allowed us to look at the conflicts of interest that are just you know endemic in this operation of McKinsey where they work both sides of the street with regulators and with regulated, with companies that are favored by the Chinese Communist Party and the Pentagon. So obviously those entities have very different agendas. There may be some people out there, I can't imagine there are many, but maybe some people who don't really know what McKinsey is. So just before we start to get into some of the stories in the book and some of the critical issues which you've started to talk about, I'm going to ask one of you to do a kind of 60-second history of the organization and the other one to do a kind of 60-second description of its current kind of scope. So I, I don't know which one of you wants to leave, but, but just tell us initially in a minute or so the history of this company. Well, the history is that it was founded by a fellow by the name of Kinsey, but he really didn't shape the future of this company. It's 100 years old. He died early. He died after he recommended that a major department store chain in the United States lay off more than a thousand employees. And when he saw that it was difficult for them to do it, he just he left the company and became CEO of that company and really tarnished McKinsey's reputation going forward because it was then viewed as sort of a cruel company that didn't have a problem with terminating people by the hundreds, if not thousands. But the real shape of the company was determined by a gentleman by the name of Marvin Bauer, who after James O. McKinsey left and died, Bauer really implemented these rigid rules structure that really contributed over years to McKinsey's prosperity and to how it does business, which is, you know, in secrecy. And, you know, I mean, they have their employees sign non-disclosure agreements. But I'll let Mike take it from here. But, you know, Ford Motors makes cars. You know, McKinsey doesn't make anything. All it does is make opinions. And there's no like real overhead since they don't have to buy starting materials. They just come up with opinions and they sell them for shockingly high numbers. So Mike, how big is it now? So now McKinsey's all over the world. More than 30,000 people work at McKinsey. They work for most of the Fortune 500 companies in the United States, most of the global you know, Fortune 500 companies as well. 
you know, all the big banks, all the big pharma companies, governments, you know, including the UK government, the US government in authoritarian countries and democracies alike. And this decentralized nature of the company kind of set up along the lines of a law firm that Marvin Bauer had envisioned back in the 1940s really is at play today. So there's fiefdoms around the world of very powerful partners, senior partners, and they call a lot of the shots and the client selection, the kind of work McKinsey does. And that's really one of the things that helped us write the book because those people know the business, say, in China, for example. And oftentimes, you know, their perspective doesn't really match the perspective or maybe the knowledge or the norms, you know, of people in the United States. And that's why you get, for example, the McKinsey partners in China having a big party in Xinjiang in Western China, just a few thousand meters away from a detention camp for Uyghurs, which happened in 2018. So it's it's that kind of decentralized nature, which has been both a, you know, a real strong point for McKinsey over the years, but also when it comes to making questionable ethical decisions has been a real weakness as well. Fascinating. I want to turn to some of the specific issues that you raise in the book, the kind of key themes, the, the things that should cause us, I think, particular kind of concern about the nature of the way the organization operates. But the book is built around a set of kind of case studies. And so before we get into these themes, I want to look at secrecy and accountability. I want to look at conflict of interest. I want to look at kind of reductive worldview at the heart of the McKinsey way. But before that, I'm going to ask you again both to choose one of those case studies in the chapters, obviously you could describe it at great length, but just tell us the kind of why it is you think that particular story, South Africa or the NHS or China, is particularly kind of interesting. So, Mike, I'll go with you first. If you had to kind of like direct us to one particular case study, what would it be? So we wrote a story about China, a chapter about China. And it, it is really illustrative of the, the real conflicts of interest at play at McKinsey. And so, for example, McKinsey's been in China for many decades now. A lot of the work early on was very easy to understand. China was developing rapidly and needed the expertise that McKinsey's been able to accrue, you know, in places like the UK and the US over the decades to help their industries reform and, and get up to global standards. That's all fine and well. But McKinsey also started working with the big state-owned enterprises in China, which are basically instruments of Chinese state power. One of them was the company that just happened to be, one of its divisions happened to be building those artificial islands in the South China Sea that China has militarized and is basically trying to turn the South China Sea into a Chinese lake, which is a big problem for defense leaders in the US and the UK and Australia and elsewhere. At the same time, McKinsey's much bigger client than any Chinese company is the Pentagon, you know, the U.S. Defense Department. And so there's a real conflict of interest there between some of the work McKinsey's doing abroad and some of the work it's doing, you know, in authoritarian countries and some of the work it's doing domestically or in the United States, for example. And so it's a built-in conflict of interest, I think, that, again, is kind of caused, I think, by this decentralized nature of McKinsey. But when you look at it as a journalist or just as John Q. Citizen, it's pretty shocking, I think, you know, that McKinsey on the one hand is working for an authoritarian government for a company that is building these islands. And on the other hand, working for the Pentagon, which is alarmed by these islands and considers it a big national security problem. Yeah. And it's working with organizations that their very nature is problematic that you would have thought if you've got a kind of ethical framework, you just look at some of these organizations and say, well, you know, you don't pass muster in terms of 
some quite basic kind of proprietary issues, but we'll come back to that. Well, what would be your kind of case study that you'd want to pull out? Well, healthcare is a big issue, not only in the United States, but around the world. And McKinsey has turned that into a major moneymaker for them. The problem with that is they decided that the way to do their business was to kind of cheat the system by consulting for the Food and Drug Administration, for instance, at the same time that they're consulting for all the major drug manufacturers. That's not the way the system should work. They have competing interests. McKinsey decided that their big interest really was in making money. If they could make more money by working both sides of the street, that's what they did. And as you know, I'm sure there has been a horrible problem in the United States involving opioid abuse, deaths of tens of thousands of people. And many people feel that the trigger was this company called Purdue Pharma, which McKinsey worked for and advised that sold opioids. And as it turned out, they were also advising the Food and Drug Administration. And people who have looked at that, including members of Congress and others, concluded that this conflict of interest of working both sides of the street contributed to this problem. And there should be some action taken to stop this sort of problem in the future. Yeah, I went to see Shakespeare's Othello while I was reading your book. And I have to, this kind of thought came into my mind that McKinsey is like the kind of corporate Iago, really, that, you know, we know the name of Enron and we know the name of the companies, Purdue or whatever, involved in the opiate scandal. But we don't so much focus on the ones who are whispering the advice behind the scenes. And McKinsey, I mean, one of the remarkable things is how it gets away with being implicated in these major scandals. But it's not, in the end, the one that's under the spotlight. So let's come to some of the characteristics of the firm that enable it to to be able to be in so many kind of problematic spaces, but continue yet to have, broadly speaking, despite the work that your book has done, this reputation as being the organization that clever people want to work for and that clever organizations want to work with. So let's just start with this issue of secrecy. I mean, it is fascinating. And as you said, your access to their lists of clients is a kind of game changer. But it seems to me it's simply not acceptable, is it? It's simply not acceptable that a company should have the capacity to hide away the demonstrable problems that exist if you were to know publicly what it was doing. I mean, it's it's advising major, major organizations to have impact on our daily lives and yet is able to draw a veil of secrecy over almost everything it does. I think that's it is in itself problematic. Absolutely. And I think where the field that that is most egregious in is in government work. You know, I think there is an expectation among members of the public, whether it's in the UK or the US or Germany, all countries where this has come up, or Canada or France, that if taxpayer money is funding these projects, then there needs to be a much higher degree of disclosure than perhaps with the private sector. You know, of course, companies, you know, do have corporate secrets and they need to trust their consultants, you know, not to tell the world about all those secrets. I think that's understandable, you know, as reasonable people, we can understand that. But when it comes to government work and McKinsey does work for governments all around the world, they also are pushing for that same level of secretness. You know, I can't tell you how many highly redacted slide decks we've gotten from Freedom of Information Act, the same process in the UK that they have in the US for FOIAs, you know, and and how so much of it has been redacted. And yet 
It's our taxes that are paying for this work. A larger issue is so much of government work is being outsourced these days, not just by government entities that hire McKinsey, but other consultancies. And I think that's really problematic because those private consultants are not accountable. And they don't have to explain how taxpayer money is spent or why they spent it in a particular way. And it's sort of rendering government sort of unable to carry out the basic responsibilities of the job. And I don't think the public really understands that. They're beginning to understand that, which is why there's upheavals in Canada and France and other places in the United States over the fact that when they learn how much money these government agencies are paying McKinsey, and why are they paying McKinsey? I mean, who are these people? You know, what qualifies them to tell the world, uh, to tell taxpayers what, you know, how their government should be behaving? Yeah, so I, I, I kind of go along with this distinction between public and private, but I think the problem is that so many of the private organizations McKinsey advises. It is advising them around issues, including how to engage with government, while at the same time it's engaging with government. So I, not only would I say there needs to be much more openness about its work with government, but there also needs to be a much more openness about its work with the private sector when there's a potential conflict of interest. And that brings me to the, to the second issue. So the first issue is this kind of secrecy, lack of accountability. But the second is this conflict of interest. And in particular, the peculiar idea that McKinsey continues, it seems to hold on to, which is that these demonstrable conflicts of interests, that we should ignore them because of the internal processes they have. And as they have these kind of internal processes, they build these kind of voluntaristic walls between different projects and different teams. That should be enough for us. And we're supposed to trust that. And, and you know, as you outline in the book, there are lots of occasions where you know, two teams, it would just require the leaders of those teams to go to the bar together and exchange notes. And it's a demonstrable conflict of interest. McKinsey's answer to that is they wouldn't go to the bar together. And it's time and again, I thought, well, this isn't satisfactory. Why should I trust the internal processes of a company which is ultimately there to maximize its profit? The answer is you shouldn't, particularly in the absence of transparency, which, you know, there's almost none of that in McKinsey. Now, to be fair to, to the the consultancy, they did make some changes after some of our earlier articles in the Times, in which they are now giving better scrutiny to some of the clients that they're thinking about hiring. Is that really turning them into a respected company, leading to better decisions? I don't know. Time will tell. But I will say this, that the managing partner who pushed for these changes, which he says were rather dramatic and going to save the company from the kinds of criticism that it was getting, he was forced out of office after just one term, which was extraordinarily unusual and hadn't happened in decades. So apparently there were people at McKinsey, I should point out that the partners vote on the, the managing partner, who was in effect the CEO, and he was pushed out. So what does that say about their interest in carrying out these reforms? Yeah, interestingly, there was a, another consulting firm in the UK, I won't name it because I don't want to be sued, but they had exactly the same thing. They brought in a new chief executive, a woman who was deeply committed to ethical standards. And I kind of was a part of a group that kind of advised her, of external people advising her about these ethical dilemmas because the company had been caught up again and again in scandals. And she instigated a system where anybody in the company could say if they felt they had any kind of concerns about work that they were doing and there would be a proper process to kind of look at this. She too was ditched by the partners after not 
you know, being in office a great deal of time. So there's a kind of pattern here. But, you know, look, the reality is if politicians said to us when we see a potential conflict of interest, well, don't worry, you know, we deal with it through the internal processes of our political party or whatever, we'd say, no, no, I'm sorry, that's really not satisfactory. We have standards here that have got to be adhered to. And and so McKinsey's reversion when it's under pressure to assurances about its internal culture, you know, for me, I don't see that as being satisfactory. So let's then turn to the the final kind of theme, which I also found really fascinating, which is that often McKinsey is just wrong. I mean, you know, they get paid, as you say, eye-watering amounts of money. And, and these are clever people, and sometimes they get things right. Of course they do, but they often also make mistakes. And for me, there are kind of two elements to that. The first is the kind of reductive nature. There is a kind of McKinsey view of the world, and it, it does remind me somewhat of the kind of, I think it's Mark Twain who said to, to the person with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I think to McKinsey consultants, all problems look like problems that need the McKinsey solution. So that's one kind of problem. And secondly, in the end, McKinsey tells bosses what bosses want to hear. So they also give this kind of the legitimacy as if, as it were, there's been some kind of entirely objective quasi-scientific process. But, you know, surprise, surprise, whoever hires McKinsey basically gets told what they want to hear. So those two issues cause me quite a lot of concern as well. What's your view on that? Well, I should go back to the beginning of your, your comment. Yeah, there are issues that uh, companies have, and that's the reason they hire McKinsey. But there are other reasons they hire McKinsey, because McKinsey tells them they have issues when they may not even realize they have a problem. So they come in there and they offer for free to take a look at the place and, you know, offer pro bono work, and then they find problems. And what we found was this guide that they give to new recruits that explains to them that, you know, you got to get inside the door and, and the quote was spread like an amoeba. And once you're in the door, you know, kind of don't leave and go around and find other issues. And that's, that's what they do. And that's how they make money. And, and then, of course, one of the easiest ways to make money is just to, to cut expenses, and that's what they're known for. They could dress it up in lots of fancy language. But the bottom line is, you know, you cut costs by cutting pay and cutting workers, outsourcing that work. And that's not good for the community. It's not good for the workers. But McKinsey is a management consultant. They're not a labor consultant. So their decisions benefit stockholders and the CEO. Yeah, and they, they're not often, I suspect, likely to advise the company management that they need to pursue profit less ruthlessly and think a little bit more about their stakeholders. Or even maybe to say to the management, the problem with this company is the management. <laughs> so this issue about them, in the end, almost inevitably reaching conclusions which assist the management in whatever the management really wanted to do in the first place. Is that unfair? That does seem to be the pattern. That's not unfair at all because it's the way McKinsey set up. You know, senior partners and partners at McKinsey really view themselves as, you know, confidential advisors to people in the C-suite of a company. You know, the CEO, CFO, COO, those are the people that hire McKinsey. So, they develop that relationship and that's you know vital to bringing in more business for McKinsey. So those are the people that they answer to. And you know it would take a you know a very brave McKinsey consultant to tell a CEO, well, you know the problem is you. And time and again, McKinsey's hired by these people to basically 
come up with something that they, you know, may have been too reluctant to tell themselves. For example, you know, layoffs. It's like, well, McKinsey came in, did a study and said, we need to cut staff by 10%. You know, far be it from us to, to go against the advice of, you know, some of the smartest people in the world, all these Rhodes scholars that are all at this consulting firm. So a kind of final question for you both. I mean, I've, I've read reviews of the book and generally very, very positive, but actually a point that's been made by a couple of reviewers is that in a sense, you're critiquing lots of things that McKinsey do the way they do it. You have lots of fascinating, fascinating kind of case studies and examples. But in the end, it's almost as if, if they could kind of deal with all these issues, in the end, the, the notion of a generic management consultant is still one that is worth holding on to. And I would distinguish here between this kind of the generic management consultancy you get with McKinsey and very specific bits of consultancy you might get. Some might come in and kind of advise you specifically in your IT system or whatever it might be. But but McKinsey are more of a kind of all-purpose kind of consultancy. Let me just tell you a, a little story of my own before you answer that kind of question about whether in the end the real problem is this very idea of the kind of generic management consultant. So years ago, I, I went to, and I will name them actually, I went to a meeting organized by the consultancy KPMG. And it was, I think, it was about 2012. So it was early in the austerity period in, in the UK. And I was going to give a talk about, I think, kind of ethical leadership. And I was put into a bad mood because before me, the person who was leading the public sector practice, because these are all their public sector consultants, had put up two graphs, which he'd put up with great pride. One was a, the line of public spending, which of course was going sharply down. And the other was the line of a KPMG profits, which seemed to be going sharply up. And he was saying, look how fantastic it is that even while, even while austerity is being imposed, we're making more money. So this kind of rubbed me up the wrong way and I wanted to be provocative. So I looked out, I don't know, it's about 150 consultants there. And I said to them, you're committed. I've heard about all these ethical values that you've got. You're committed to this. I said, I'd like one of you, any of you, to give me an example of when you turned down a piece of work that you could have got because you realized it wouldn't be useful. You realized that what you were being asked to do wasn't particularly, you know, the, the company organization wasn't ready to chat, whatever it might be. You just thought, no, 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 this isn't useful. Of course, not a single person was able to identify a single example of when they had said, no, actually, you don't really need us. We, we couldn't really be helpful in this regard, <laughs> which I thought really got right there where they gave a line. Now, this was 11 years ago. So I say to all those KPMG listeners out there, look, you know, I'm sure you've changed by now. But I thought it was quite telling because basically, whatever the ethical desires of KPMG, however sincere they might be, the incentives for each of their consultants was to go out and to get more work, regardless of whether or not actually it would do any bloody good at all. And I can't see how the model of generic management consultancy can ever be anything other than that. So tell me how you kind of view the kind of critique which says that in the end, you kind of let off the model itself. You, you kind of, it's as if, if only McKinsey could deal with all these flaws, still the business model's okay. Let me make one point here relative to what you're saying here, what you just said, is that there are instances where McKinsey will turn down work, but those instances are when the companies are really small and they're not going to make enough profit. I think if there is a large sum of money being dangled in front of them, that they're going to reach out and grab it no matter who's offering it. It might be Saudi Arabia where they have no business being. Nobody who believes in kind of human rights or any of those issues would have any doing over there, but McKinsey does because they make money. And that seems to be their model. 
go where there's money. They will turn down if they don't think they can make money. That's their system. Yeah, I mean, and to be a bit contrarian here, I don't know if it's contrarian, but you know, there probably is a purpose in the world for management consultants. You know, certainly CEOs and companies need sometimes they need really smart people to take a look under the hood or the bonnet, you know, and to see, you know, what the problems might be. And so uh, we're not- uh, But can those people, but Michael, can those people ever be objective when they're hired by the people in charge of the company? And as I say, they're never going to turn around and say, well, look, the wrong people are running this company. That's the problem. You know, oftentimes that may be exactly right, what you said. You know, sometimes they can provide good advice, though. I think our book may have been, you know, some people at McKinsey especially criticize it because it's, well, this isn't what we're all about. You know, you're just picking all the bad things. And like Walt always likes to say, you know, we're reporters, we're journalists. You know, when a when a plane crashes, we go write about it. You know, that's what we write about. We don't write stories about, you know, when a plane takes off safely and lands safely. That's that's not news. So, you know, obviously our book is critical and that's because you know, we found so many examples around the world where McKinsey's work uh, was problematic. But I, I would be very reluctant to say that there's no purpose at all to a management consultancy. And, and you know, I do think that through the course of reporting, there have been instances where we've seen where McKinsey's advice actually did help a company, for example. It doesn't speak well to the CEO and his or her ability to hire good people for the company that they feel the need to spend a lot of money to hire kids who might be 25, 26 years old to explain a better way to do business. I mean, that to me <laughs> doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yes. And here in the UK, I've heard it said that sometimes McKinsey is hired because simply the act of hiring McKinsey is seen as a kind of status symbol. And that is something you say in the book as well. So that's one of the kind of bits of genius of their business model is that the very act of hiring them in some ways makes chief executives feel more self-important. Well, look, well, Michael, it's been fantastic speaking with you. I thought I would enjoy when McKinsey comes to town, the hidden influence of the world's most powerful consulting firm, and it arrived on my doormat. I was not disappointed. It's a, it's a fascinating read, and we've only skimmed the surface today. So if you want to read it objectively, because you really want to stand the issues, or if you want to read it like I did out of, as I said, a kind of schadenfreude for those people who are cleverer than me and can get jobs in this organization, either way, You'll enjoy it, and I recommend it. Thank you, Walt. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. When you put a good book aside for a moment, it, it can sometimes stimulate kind of lateral thoughts, connections to a connected but different topic. At one point, Walt and Michael's book got me thinking about the idea of offering advice. We tend to see this as a, a benign act, giving something of ourselves freely to others. But aren't there two pretty big things that we always should consider before we tell people what we think they should do? First, are we willing to be accountable to the person we're advising or, or to ourselves if they follow our guidance and then everything goes pear-shaped? Second, assuming the advice we give says as much about us as it does about its recipient – are we in danger of simply imposing the advice we would like to have been given ourselves onto someone whose needs we can never fully understand? One of my top three regrets in life was the bad advice I once gave someone. So whether you're a McKinsey consultant or a friend of someone in need, 
the best place to respond to a request for advice is probably one of considered humility. Goodbye. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen. 